and welcome to the ZMM Podcast. My name is Hokyu, and I'm pleased to bring you this interview we recently recorded with William Waldron, Buddhist scholar and professor of religion at Middlebury College in Vermont. Waldron received his BA in South Asian Studies and PhD in Buddhist Studies from the University of Wisconsin after working with native scholars in India, Nepal, and Japan. Altogether, he spent more than 10 years in Asia as a scholar and student of Buddhism. His research focuses in particular on the Yogacara philosophy of mind, a major influence on Mahayana Buddhism as we understand it today. In addition to a book on Yogacara entitled The Buddhist Unconscious, Waldron has written numerous articles on the interface between Buddhist philosophy and modern theories of mind, from evolutionary biology and cognitive science to psychology. Our conversation took place in February 2020 at Zen Mountain Monastery. We recorded in the Sangha House following a weekend retreat led by Bill Waldron on the topic of Yogacara philosophy and how it illuminates bias in all its many forms. Bill Waldron, welcome to the ZMM podcast. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's start with the term Yogacara. You said yesterday that the meaning of the term is um, those who practice yoga. Yes. And, uh, you know, many of us know that the term yoga comes from the root uh, meaning is to yoke or to join together. Uh, BKS Iyengar rendered that as, as uh, unifying mind, body, and spirit. And, um, you know, we know that also that it doesn't, just pertain to people doing physical asana. Um, but why did the, the, the founders of Yogacara, uh, Asanga and Vasubandhu, why did they term their philosophy Yogacara? The term Yogacara wasn't in widespread use at, the, at that time. Uh-huh. So it does show up in some of the earlier, some of the classical yoga chara texts. In many ways, it was a, a term that was used somewhat after, after okay. their time. So the collection of writings known as like Yoga Charabhumi that was later titled that? No, that was called Yoga Chara, but it, it wasn't, a, I, mm-hmm. I should be speci- more specific, it wasn't a school uh-huh. until afterwards. Right. Okay. And, uh, you know, yoga in the Indian context is actually a generic term in many ways for religious practice. There are many types of yoga. People who are familiar with uh, Hinduism may be familiar with bhakti yoga or karma yoga, jnana yoga. And so it is a, a, a larger sort of broad meaning of the term. And though I have not seen a reference to why they coined this term or used this term, I could infer that, um, historically speaking, they came after the advent of the Mahayana notion of emptiness, of shunyata. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the, the great work of Nagarjuna, who was able to logically deconstruct the notion that anything had any self or object had some type of unchanging essence. But logical deconstruction by itself, for most people, for the vast majority of people, does not really affect a, a, a profound uh, spiritual transformation or psychological transformation. And for that kind of psychological or spiritual transformation, there needs to be a lot more deeper kind of work in understanding the uh, mechanics and dynamics of, of, of mind and spirit and heart. And this is, I think, the generic sense of uh, yoga that's being uh, alluded to here. Mm. So it sounds like perhaps they were saying what came before was, um, was philosophically okay, but what we're doing is going to be more for the spiritual practitioner that is really going to be integrated. Is that... Well, it's more than philosophically okay. If if one, <laughs> I mean, I think of every you know later philosophy as being trying to um, either further elaborate or improve upon their predecessors. 
Yes, and and I I think that uh, you know Nagarjuna's work is very logical and philosophical, and and it just doesn't for most again for most people that doesn't really bring about a deep transformation because mm-hmm. our habits of mind, our habits, emotional habits. Our behavioral habits are very, very deeply entrenched. And so even if for people who can say, oh, yes, this logic deconstructing uh, essences and seeing that everything is empty makes perfect sense, nevertheless, I am still imagining and acting as if I am a, a substantial entity and the things around me are substantial entities. So this sort of imputation of entities and essences is still operating. Mm-hmm. And so you um, need to have a practice at a whole variety of levels to mm-hmm. uh, address and transform that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, in the retreat that as far as you've seen the meditative practices that um, the Yogacarans were uh, were working with or advocating for were really not so different from um, from the essential standard teaching shamatha and vipassana, so they were uh, they were quieting the mind and then and then um, hoping for insights coming arising out of that stability and and quiet. Um, but clearly, there must have been an expectation, and practitioners over the ages must be using these teachings not just as um, not just as analytical philosophy but uh, but applying them in a meditative embodied way right oh yeah yeah certainly and i think that uh what is one of the, some of the things that are very innovative about the yogacara school is their analysis of our cognitive processes and our psychological and emotional processes where they articulated uh, a, a way in which we can think about these is occurring subliminally, that is just outside of our awareness. And if you have a, a, a more elaborate or more precise kind of model uh, of analysis, then when one goes into a meditative practice, like a kind of analytic meditation of vipassana, then you can recognize a little bit deeper what is going on. And, and there is a relationship between an understanding of dharma uh, in a conceptual kind of fashion and then the way that that can be uh, carried out in, a, in meditation. Mm-hmm. And so having a more profound model, a model which addresses things uh, in a deeper kind of way, like subliminal processes, allows us to recognize that when when it comes up in meditative practice. Mm-hmm. So having a, a faulty model or a very simplistic model of what is going on as a, a way of guiding meditative practice is not is not obviously going to be mm-hmm. as useful as having one that is that has more detail, I guess you could say. You could think about it as, as like a map. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we can, we're here, you know, in a mountain, mountainous area. And if we want to go hiking, uh, having a road map that doesn't show the, the topography is not going to be that useful. I mean, it's okay. It's better than nothing. But if we have a, a topographical map uh, and we want to go hiking up to Mount Trembler, then um, that's going to be a lot more useful. And we could think about that. I think it's a, I haven't thought about this before, but as an analogy, mm. what the Yogacharans have done is add to the map of the mind that we find in, in early Buddhism and uh, the practice of meditation that that's accompanies that. They've added a sort of depth to that. It's a kind of a depth psychology. And when you have that sort of depth, you have a, a better sense of the topography uh, of mind and mental processes or mind and emotional processes. And the topography mm. then includes these deep, deep areas that do come up, of course, in meditative 
practice mm-hmm. and then having a sense of, oh, yes, that's this. This is hitting my, my predispositions, mm-hmm. right? This is pushing my triggers and I recognize that they're there, that they have operate all the time. And now I can say, oh, yes, it's that. Yes, it's that. And uh, that just gives us a better handle conceptually mm-hmm. for understanding what exactly is going on in our, our meditative practice. And so, you know, I think a lot of people would say at first blush, you know, this, this sounds like uh, emptiness teaching or they encounter yoga chart and it's like, okay, well, I encounter, empty, I encounter notions of, of emptiness and, of course, from Nagarjuna and also from, from Mahayana sutras and there's modern teachers who talk about it. But, um, but yoga chara is giving us a systematic language for applying or for understanding what that really means, what shunyata means and what it, what the implications are for our psychology and our, our perceptions. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we, we could think about, um, emptiness as more or less equivalent to dependent arising. And Nagarjuna famously says that dependent arising and dependent designation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what is dependent arising and, what the Yogacharans are doing is they're saying we, we need to use the analyses couched in the language of dependent arising to understand the dependent arising of the imputation of essences. Mm-hmm. Imputation of essences. And so thing, yeah. emptiness isn't being used simply as a logical form of deconstruction, but it's, it's addressed towards the processes of imputation. And so this is the uh, famous set of ideas called the three natures in Yogacara. The mm-hmm. falsely imagined or the imputed nature mm-hmm. is what we imagine or we act out as if things were were essential independent entities. Mm-hmm. The dependent nature, the second one, is looking at the dependent arising of the processes of imputation. Mm-hmm. Why do we not see things as empty? Right. despite whatever logical arguments we may be convinced by. Because they're constantly being reinforced by our perceptions and by our culture. Right, and so if we want to understand the dependent arising of, of essences, of ideas, concepts, as if they were independent, uh, then we need to flesh that out in terms of well, how does that actually work for any given person in a time and place, and what... Mm-hmm. The analysis of the depth psychology of Yogacara is bringing, bringing in as they're fleshing out, okay, here are the causes and conditions for our imputation of essences. In the famous passage that we discussed from the Samdhinyamochana Sutra, the imputation of essences is informed by nimitta nama vikarpa vyavahara papancha. That is the runaway associations involved with the common usage or common way of speaking in terms of images and uh, characteristics and names. Mm. And what that means, in my understanding, what that means is that we have all these sort of these these images and names of things. Uh, we associate them with certain kinds of characteristics and uh, concepts, preconceptions, and these are sort of the underpinning, really, of our ordinary cognitive processes. Mm-hmm. And but these are operated at a, at a very subliminal level because they're deeply, deeply habituated, mm-hmm. and so they operate automatically and without us uh, recognizing it. And so this is fleshing out what are the causes and conditions for the dependent arising of our experience of the world. And why is it that we impute this kind of essence or that kind of essence? And because we've been socialized into a, um, we've been racialized into a a society full of of these kinds of social categories and these racial categories and, and, and ethnic categories and gender categories, these are the ways that we operate and, and, and understand the world automatically and unconsciously. But this is a, a, a set of, of not just imputations of essences, but also relationships between sort of images and names and characteristics and the associations that we have with, with them 
without us really n- noticing it most of the time. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, one of the wonderful things that the Yogacara brings to this discussion is, okay, how have we been socialized in terms of these kinds of categories? And how do, why is it that they sort of, we, we see the world and imagine that the world is actually populated by these discrete independent groups? Mm-hmm. Because this operates automatically and, and unconsciously mm-hmm. through socialization and through habituation. Yeah. And having just these concepts of socialization and habituation and categorization that operate at this uh, non-conscious level, this helps us in our own not just a meditative practice, but when we get up off the cushion and... and relating to other subjects. Relating to other human beings around yeah. us. And, and my experience has been that if we slow down and are mindful of these processes, mm-hmm. then we can say, oh, yes, okay, here. There's, I, I see somebody, I'm interacting, and I have these, these, these predispositions and these categories, and, and they're, they're coloring these associations, and they're coloring my emotive, emotional reactions, mm-hmm. and, and filling it full of all kinds of, if I may, ridiculous preconceptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which proliferate. Which proliferate. Ad exactly. <laughs> At, yes. Um, so the retreat this weekend came out of uh, much of your recent work where you apply yogachara to or or combine it with other social sciences to investigate tough questions like we're speaking of um related to why is there evil in the world or or how do we confront and understand racism um you argue that this is consistent with recent trends in other disciplines and 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 that you're merely making it more overt by drawing out the connections Uh, In one paper you write, there exists an increasing recognition that thinking in terms of unchanging essences, entities, and identities deeply misconstrues the human condition, a misunderstanding that inadvertently leads to, rather than alleviates, human evil and suffering. Um, I really enjoyed uh, your use of evolutionary biology uh, to explain the roots of our deluded views. That's something that I've always been fascinated by. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to uh, which disciplines you would say are most resonant with Yogacara teachings, and um, do you see evidence that studying those in and of themselves have the capacity, demonstrably, to uh, to transform the people who are studying them? Do, uh, well, I think the most... Uh, um relevant field is cognitive science. Mm. So are you asking me, does the, does the findings that, uh, of the cognitive scientists transform the scientists themselves? Yes, because, mm. uh, you know, we were, we were uh, talking, especially towards the end of the retreat, about, you know, how can these teachings be relevant in right. the world and right. not just exist in the ivory tower? Right. And right. Um, But what about all the people coursing through the ivory tower who may not find themselves delving into Buddhist studies? But So what I th- the way that I think about this is that um, throughout the 20th century, a whole variety of different uh, sciences and disciplines have come to terms with what we might call constructivism. That is that we can't make sense of the world in terms of uh, unchanging essences, such as what was inherited by the uh, Greek philosophy of Platonism, that the world is populated with these things that really don't change, like evolution was a massive rejection of Greek or Aristotelian categories Mm -hmm. and had to start thinking in terms of what we might phrase Buddhistically the dependent arising of a species. Mm -hmm. And the idea that species were immutable um, categories had to just simply be rejected. And that is true across the board, more or less, of all the disciplines that I'm familiar with, and certainly in the social sciences, the constructed nature of society, the constructed nature of social categories, uh, the constructed nature of sort of psychological schemas, uh, etc. And so in a way, this is throughout 
I would say, the academic disciplines and scientific disciplines. But to a degree, each one of these people, and I don't mean to be criticizing the scientists per se, or the social scientists per se, but my sense is that in their particular discipline, they, un they, they understand and deconstruct the notion of essences because it doesn't work. But when they go home from their office, so to speak, mm -hmm. they live in a, a Western environment that is still replete with all kinds of uh, ideas about essences and, re and, and what we would say is imputing essences because that's the cultural milieu, uh, the overarching cultural milieu of, of Western society. And that's in great tension with the constructivist uh, orientation of all of these disciplines. And so one of the things that I think that the Buddhist per, uh, perspective brings, particularly the Mahayana Buddhist perspective brings to all of this, is a larger framework. Okay, we, we understand what the problems of imputing essences are. We have some theories about how that arises in our cognitive processes. And we frame those concerns in a in a question about what is the causes of suffering and what leads to the alleviation yeah. of suffering and anxiety. So the, the larger framework of this is a problem of the human condition, we need to recognize the imputation and the dependent arising of the imputation of essences, but we realize what the human purpose of that, uh, those analyses are. They are for the purpose of liberation and alleviating suffering and dissatisfaction and anxiety. Mm. And that's not necessarily the job of the people in the sciences or the social sciences. So that's not a criticism of mm. what they're doing. They have a different job. Yeah. But we can utilize and absorb and uh, adapt, one might say, appropriate <laughs> their particular... Uh, <laughs> findings for for the for our purposes mm -hmm. you know they're public domain and our purposes is to help understand the processes of imputation mm -hmm. and the harm that that creates mm -hmm. in terms of alleviating suffering and that certainly hand, goes hand in hand with a, a lot of the uh, purposes that a lot of people in the social sciences have the social activists who talked about talk about the constructed nature of society, their motivation, I think, is largely to alleviate suffering as well. And so there's a, mm -hmm. this, these are very natural dialogue partners right. with uh, Mahayana Buddhists. Yeah. I mean, there's also the whole school of post-structuralism and, you know, people like Paul Deman and Judith Butler, Jacques Derrida. And I mean, that school sort of, sort of, uh, self-destructed but it, but in essence there was a lot of dharma in it it just i mean but, i think you kind of came of age you probably were like working on your phd when that was sort of at its height and the way that the way that i think of this fashion. Is, is 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 uh first there is a mountain then there is no mountain then there is right this is a mm -hmm. song that was made popular by donovan in yeah. the 60s <laughs> but it was derived from a, a chan poem mm -hmm. which itself was derived from a, a, the pragna paramita the perfection of wisdom sutras and so first there is a mountain we have a, a naive sort of realistic view that mm -hmm. there things are existent in some independent fashion we deconstruct that through analysis, logical or psychological, there is no mountain. It's not really what it appears to be. In Yogacara terms, it doesn't really exist on its own, independent from our engagement, our cognitive engagement with it. And that's the point of deconstruction that I think postmodernism sort of arrived at yeah. in, a, in a useful fashion. Uh -huh. But if one stops there... Then there's the real problem, I think, is that there is no sense that there are facts mm -hmm. that have, if they're not totally, absolutely objective, uh, that doesn't mean there are no facts at all, that, that there are facts that, are, that operate reliably. That's why we can be using these kinds of technology. Mm -hmm. So clearly there are certain kinds of reliable and recurrent 
patterns in the world that we need to make sense of. But a lot of the deconstruction has sort of not only denied the um, ability that we can have reliable facts about the world, yeah. but also that therefore we can't talk about consequences of our actions. Mm. And I think what has happened is is that kind of movement has sort of cut their feet off from under them, like mm. you said, de- deconstructed themselves, mm-hmm. because they they are not sure, at least this is my Mahayana perspective, mm-hmm. they're not sure what the import of that deconstruction is. Mm-hmm. And the framework that the Mahayana Buddhists give is the import of that deconstruction, uh, first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, is to come back off of the non-mountain <laughs> and say, okay, then there is a mountain. We live mm-hmm. in this world of conventional dependent arising. Mm-hmm. The Bodhisattva returns yeah. to the world. A moral world as opposed a, to moral A world that has consequences. Mm-hmm. A world that has knowledge that we can, it, maybe it's not absolute and independent, it's knowledge that we have to debate and work am- amongst ourselves. Mm-hmm. And this hey. is called the conventional the affirmation of the convention. The affirmation of the conventional is really important. Mm. You know, and this is something I think that is distinctive to Mahayana. And it was developed 2,000 years ago in India, you know, with, with Nagarjuna and the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. And this is the whole point of the Mahayana is, is, is we, we step out of a, a, an experience of, of non-dualism and we step out of out of the sort of um, ineffable reality of ta-ta-ta, of suchness or thusness. And we come back and out of compassion and insight, discernment, we find ways to communicate and to act compassionately in the dependent arising world. Mm-hmm. And this is what our the commitment is. And that includes, of course, using whatever knowledge we have our best practices, so to speak, in order to alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the larger rationale for why, in, in fact, we need to engage in all the scientific findings in the social science. We need mm-hmm. to find whatever helps to alleviate suffering and, and, and overcome ignorance. Mm-hmm. And these are these are the skillful means that, that for communication that that we need in this time and place. But coming back into the world of the the conventional and using it skillfully is exactly what Mahayana is about. And I think postmodernism and the decon- deconstruction got stuck in the moment of negativity. Uh-huh. There is no mountain, but we need to say, you know, there it is. We can walk that path mm-hmm. together by working through what works mm-hmm. at the conventional level, which means there's no final truth or theory about these things. It's mm-hmm. constantly in process. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. W- what has been um, the reaction from colleagues in different uh, sectors and different uh, disciplines from your interdisciplinary work? Do you get feedback? Not very much. (laughs) I tried to contact somebody once in the philosophy department. He had written this really nice book on Wittgenstein Mm. and uh, that was very, very similar to uh, what we see with with Nagarjuna, theories of language. And he said, oh, we have somebody who does uh, Indian philosophy. You you should contact them. That's, That's... a lot of people, are, I think, are like that. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of career incentives for them to stay in their own silos, right. as we say. Uh-huh. And a, a lot of people do not find it very useful for them to step outside of it. Mm-hmm. And there are exceptions, of course. Somebody in my college in the philosophy department is a great student of Nagarjuna. Mm-hmm. And, but he he's mostly does Western philosophy. But... There are exceptions, but by and large, interdisciplinary work is not, um, it's not well incentivized in academia Mm -hmm. because the whole mode of production of of papers and publishing is what counts and then you have to publish in a peer Mm -hmm. reviewed journal Mm -hmm. and it, it 
creates this sort of silo effect yeah. by and large. I think it is what general readers are looking to, though, because, um, you know, the work of someone like Jared Diamond, who takes anthropology and, and evolutionary biology, and, um, you know, the average layperson is um, befuddled by a lot of academic traditions and they want information, they want to understand our world, but they don't want to have to do a deep dive into any one particular sphere. So some, so someone who's bringing it all together is, tends to be appreciated when they do it well. So. I, I think that's true. And, and, you know, there was an era uh, in which um, of public intellectuals, yeah, you know, in which right. people in universities were really leading public voices. And there are yeah. quite a few people like that. Yeah. And, you know, More in France. <laughs> well, <laughs> people in France are willing to read intellectual books. You know, <laughs> there's a smaller readership here. But there are such people. Mm-hmm. Um, in Harvard in particular, the you know, Ivy Leagues, you know, they, I think they must get mm-hmm. some kind of deep incentive, I don't really know, for writing books that are accessible to the educated public. Yeah. 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 Um, let's take a step back. I wanted to hear a little bit about your, uh, your, own, um, your own academic training and uh, your... Uh, path into Buddhist studies and and how you came to your specialization in Yogacara? Well, I think for a lot of people, my entry into the Buddhist path was through Dukkha, the first noble truth, the holy door, in which Dukkha and uh, dissatisfaction is an instigator towards uh, learning and investigation. And uh, I grew up at the tail end of the Vietnam War era, that was full of violence and uh, internationally and domestically a lot of racial violence, the importation of drugs through Southeast Asia that just racked uh, a lot of communities, especially inner city communities. And for whatever reason, the the commotion and the and the violence at all these different levels just hit me, and. I felt that I had to understand and respond to it. And part of the way that I did that was read a bunch of books. I was, my adolescence was kept a little bit safe because I mm. stayed in my room listening to books, uh, reading books yeah. and, and listening to Bob Dylan and John Coltrane. Yeah. But uh, then I moved up to the northern woods of Michigan and, and kind of took a two-year retreat in hindsight, I could call it that. I didn't know what I was doing or why. And I ended up meditating for hours a day and mm-hmm. reading, lightly reading uh, Buddhist materials, hearing, contemplating, cultivating. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, oh, I should go to India. That's where they really, that's where they, the horse's mouth, go to where yeah. they know the real stuff. And then I discovered India was a lot more than just people doing yoga. <laughs> And uh, I knew nothing about India before I went there. And I discovered uh, the people that I really enjoyed the most were the Tibetans. And, you know, they were cold weather mountain people, Mm -hmm. which is kind of my... As you had been. As I had been, (laughs) in a way, yes. And they were were compassionate and um, tough. And I liked that. You know, Martin Luther King says, be tough-minded but kind-hearted. And that's what I found them to be. And the Buddhist ways of, of, of thinking, you know, very psychological in ways. It just, um, I responded to that um, in very, very positively. In fact, my res- initial response to even Buddhist readings before I left the United States was, wow, there are other people in the world to see things the way that I do. I'm not alone anymore. And that was a really big kind of realization. Yeah that I wasn't crazy mm-hmm. uh, for seeing char- personality as conflicted and constructed and compromised, mm-hmm. which is sort of my Freudian kind of model. Mm-hmm. And, and that people had really thought this through for centuries. That people had, there were whole cultures yeah. built yeah. around seeing Not the world Not just muttering to each other at the end of the bar or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so 
I spent a, a number of years actually in, in India and Nepal and decided that that was a reason then for me to uh, go and get some uh, more training. And then, I, so at the age of 25, I went into the University of Wisconsin and uh, they had a Buddhist studies program. At that point, it was the only Buddhist studies program in the States. Or maybe it was. It was one of the first, uh, really, in the country. It uh, was the first one in mm -hmm. the country, and there was a there was one at University of Michigan at the same time, but they didn't teach Tibetan then. Uh -huh. And so I went to Wisconsin. There was a Tibetan Lama Geshe Zopa, uh, very 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 well trained in, in especially in the Madhyamaka tradition, and so I went as an. Un as a young undergraduate of 25, mm -hmm. I went and started taking graduate level courses mm -hmm. and language courses. Uh, and then I continued on uh, in graduate school in the Buddhist studies program and continued studying languages and sort of expanded a fair bit out of just Tibetan Buddhism yeah. into East Asian Buddhism as well. But I ended up doing my dissertation work in Japan uh, at Otani University, a Pure Land mm -hmm. University, with a, a great scholar of Abhidharma in Indian Yogacara. Mm -hmm. And so my work at that point started to move into uh, Indian Yogacara. I was reading in something that you had written about uh, your, uh, your training at Otani and then also back in Wisconsin. You were mm -hmm. uh, doing your grad and post grad work, and um, you know it's it's it was quite rigorous and, and demanding, and and doing line by line translations from Sanskrit. And um, well, first of all, what what is a text critical text critical uh, approach to that kind of work? So, in the uh, text critical approach, is you look at texts. Critically, as if they are, uh, at least what we have in our hand, is a product of, of, of human construction that happened uh, in a particular time and place historically. Mm -hmm. And these, you know, these great t Buddhist texts were composed 20 centuries ago, a lot of them, you know, great Mahayana texts. 15, 20 centuries ago. Mm -hmm. They um, had a history of composition. Uh, in the climate of India, text had to be copied uh, uh, by hand uh, on palm leaf type manuscripts every 15 or 20 years because they would degenerate in the monsoon season. And so texts that were not copied regularly and sit on somebody's shelf would just they'd pick them up and they'd fall apart in their hands. And so, and this is true in tropical kinds of climates. and. And people who were copying things, mm -hmm. not only did it have a, have a history of composition, but people who would copy things would often make mistakes. Uh -huh. And so you would have these, these many different kinds of manuscripts, and they would vary considerably, especially because the history of composition, people would often add things, or they would add explanatory uh -huh. uh, paragraphs into here because it's or interpolations with their own agenda or interpret interpretations with their own agenda and so you have a whole variety of proliferation of manuscripts you could say that just don't really agree with each other in a lot of different ways and and so what a text critical analysis is doing is trying to have some sense of the genealogy of these various manuscripts that you then have and when you talk about Mahayana texts uh, in particular, uh, an awful lot of these were translated into, into Chinese and then into Tibetan. And the, then the translation history uh, is also uh, full of a lot of um, history of composition, history mm -hmm. of copying, mm -hmm. uh, translations, the early translations into Chinese typically were not very good. 
but the Chinese preserved all of these different translations, and they got better and better over the centuries. Mm -hmm. And so even that early, the, looking at all of these different manuscripts give us a sense of, of the growth and, and expansion of these great Mahayana texts. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, even though we might think they're not great translations, they're giving us a really good sense of the history of the composition uh -huh. of a lot of Mahayana texts. Uh -huh. So it's looking at all of the variations uh, in terms of composition, in terms of, of content, in terms of language, mm -hmm. and it can very, very easily get extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese are quite good at this. Uh -huh. This is something that I've really learned in Japan more than in the U.S. Is this kind of approach more or less available, would you say, to people who are entering Buddhist studies now? I mean, oh. that kind of rigor, that kind of oversight from, uh, from professors who have been doing it themselves for decades and are willing to work with students. It's available still in the United States. You, you have to be oriented towards that uh, yeah. in order to choose that sort of arena of Buddhist studies. Yeah. It is more prominent in, in Europe, which is where it really got developed to a large degree. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are not that many universities that do Buddhist studies in Europe compared to the United mm. States. Mm. It has been, and the Japanese are very, very good at this, and there are many wonderful um, sort of reference works that you can find that really help this, uh, help you do this in, uh -huh. in, in Japan, in, uh -huh. in Japanese language. Yeah. Um, you know, luckily, in many ways, the growth of Buddhist studies in the United States is, has started to include a lot more social, cultural, and historical uh, orientations, both, mm -hmm. both doing historical reconstruction yeah. of, say, monastic life or the monastic economy or the monastic lay relations, but also contemporary kind of anthropological work. Wow. And so now textual critical work is just one part of uh, Buddhist studies in the academy. Wow. Most of the classical Yogacara works were written in Sanskrit, but only about a quarter of them are still extant in Sanskrit. Uh -huh. And the rest of them, like so many of the Mahayana works, were translated into Chinese and right. Tibetan. And then lost in their originals. And then lost in the original. So due to, due to climate or or cultural collapse. That's right. I mean, the, a lot of uh, non-Buddhists did not have a lot of incentive to pay money to have these texts Recopied, you know, mm. generation after generation, they weren't didn't mean anything to them. So it was, you know, they kept copying Hindu texts because that's the majority of the tradition. Mm. More majority of people in India uh, were invested in in the study and and transmission of those texts. But so what what you end up doing, and what I I did in Japan, and what I learned from my uh, Japanese teachers, particularly uh, Miyashita Seiki Sensei who really led me through my dissertation work, was we looked at, uh, at the same time, uh, Sanskrit text, the Tibetan and the Chinese translation. So I would sort of cut out a paragraph at a time, like three Sanskrit sentences, the corresponding places of the Tibetan, and maybe there were two Tibetan translations. Mm or two editions of the copies, mm -hmm. and then the, the one or two, some uh, translations into Chinese. And so sort of sentence by sentence, I would be looking at these parallels mm -hmm. from the Sanskrit to the Chinese to the Tibetan. And then I started, he, he said, I needed to read these texts, the Tibetan and Chinese translations, as if they were Sanskrit. I need to be thinking in Sanskrit grammatical terms. Wow. and. Sanskrit technical terms and get that sort of uh, habituated, if I may. Mm -hmm. And then I could start reading the, the, the text that had lost the Sanskrit, mm -hmm. and, but I would understand what the Tibetan and the Chinese were doing as a reflection of uh -huh. the original Sanskrit. Looking through the eyes of the original translators, well, then you perhaps. Have, you like, have. What were they seeing exactly. and what were they trying to do and then exactly. walking that back? Exactly. Kind uh -huh. of a reverse engineering. Mm -hmm. And there are so many remarkable scholars in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that, that some of them do is attempt to reconstruct the Sanskrit from the Tibetan and Chinese. Mm which is 
remarkable kind of uh, ability and exercise. Yeah. And that's, this is what I learned uh, in Japan. And they do a, an amazing kind of textual critical studies, mm -hmm. which is really, really important because uh, these, these are going to last. Mm -hmm. This kind of work is going to last. Yeah. And trends in studying things sort of socially, culturally, they become trends. You know, something's really interesting for one generation of scholars, but later on it's nowhere near as interesting and often just gets ignored later on. Mm -hmm. but, but the texts, like is true for most literate traditions, they have a, a, a kind of a pride of place that people can, generation after generation, can go back to and read mm -hmm. and find inspiration and mm -hmm. insight. Yeah. Um, so because we do have to conclude, I want to try a couple different ways to conclude. One being to try to touch into or mention that we concluded the retreat yesterday with a open-ended discussion of how... Uh, Yogacara philosophy might be a better disseminated or better incorporated into an overall discourse of how people understand suffering and even oppression. And, um, and it was a, a valuable conversation. It of course led to no conclusions. Um, but I'm wondering if there's anything more that you wanted to say about, uh, how you feel Yogacara philosophy speaks to bias and its unique uh, capacity for helping people to unpack that in their own lives and, uh, and institutionally. Well, kind of like what I, I said before, um, it gives us a set of conceptual tools for thinking about implicit bias, especially the depth psychology of of Yogacara and that at the deeper strata of our cognitive processes that are not conscious and that are automatic, we it is still categorized and classified. And there are still all these other processes that are going on, we could say subliminally. And of course that's not news to modern cognitive science by any means. But it gives us these, these analytic tools uh, about thinking about our social categories and it puts it in the context of this is a problem and this is a problem that it comes about through imputation. It can be understood through the de an, an analysis of the dependent arising mm -hmm. of of imputing or imagining these realistic categories mm -hmm. and in a meditative context of we can address these, we can look at these sort of trains of association that happen mostly non-consciously, but we can come to understand them through sitting and through our um, empathetic and receptive conversations with each other. And that this is part and parcel of the Buddhist path of understanding the way that the three poisons are operating in our lives here. Mm -hmm. I think this is really, really essential. Yeah. And if I might add, I think one of the most fascinating parts of your work is how you describe this sort of imputation and the propensity for our delusions being encultured to all be second nature, if not primary nature, to our species. And so there's really no, uh, there's no villains, but we all need to take responsibility for this karma, especially because we do have the tools and these tools are being made available by people like yourself who are, you know, helping us understand these tools um, to, uh, to transform. I, I think that's really important. And from the, the Buddhist point of view is that we are all ignorant and we are all driven by the three poisons. So this is not a blame game. It's not about finding out some people who are sort of uniquely to blame or not to blame. We're all enmeshed 
in the three poisons. And so for the people at least who have an, a, an aspiration towards liberation and helping sentient beings, this particular way in which the three poisons operate is something which is, which is really, really crucial. And if we think about the, the Sangha as part of the, the, the third gem, we need to do this together. And it isn't about blame, but it's about helping each one of us on our path together. I think this is a good place to bring it to a close. I want to thank you once again for being here at Zen Mountain Monastery this weekend for a wonderful retreat, helping us to understand these teachings a bit better. And obviously that it is a, an ongoing pursuit. And um, thank you for the conversation. Okay, I'm really thankful that I was uh, invited down here and have had the opportunity to really try to communicate and unpack uh, the implications of a lot of these teachings for, for these very important issues. This has really helped me a lot also in thinking through how we might proceed with this kind of dialogue. Right. I should add that um, another uh, lovely aspect to the weekend was that a number of your students from Middlebury came. Um, they're obviously super fans. They weren't getting extra credit. And, um, you know, it was great to have their energy here and to see, you know, the next generation of, of uh, Buddhist studies people, you know, letting their feet carry them uh, beyond the classroom. Well, I thought they would really get a lot out of a, a, a short weekend here at the Zen Mountain Monastery and see what a, a working monastery, Buddhist monastery, looks like and what the kind of community is. They're very interested in intentional communities of spirit-driven, oriented towards spiritual transformation. They're very interested in Buddhism. A couple of them have done um, quite a few long retreats and Zen retreats mm. in China and Taiwan and in the U.S. So it was a great um, opportunity for me to get a lift down here. <laughs> well, they're welcome back anytime and we hope to see you again before too long as well. Okay, I hope so as well. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, thanks. For more from the Mountains and Rivers Order, visit mountainrecord.org where you'll find interviews, media reviews, essays, and the latest news from Zen Mountain Monastery, the Zen Center of New York City, and beyond. You'll also find a link to our new print journal, which is simply called Mountains and Rivers. The journal features articles from MRO teachers, stunning photography, and insightful conversations. The journal can be purchased from monasterystore.org. Thanks for listening.